Hello, world singers. My name is Tyler. And my name is Brooke. And this is Cosmere Conversations. Welcome back, everyone. We are here today to break down Oathbringer. Oh my gosh. Oathbringer! We've done it before. I just want to have this be as clear as possible. We already did 10 episodes. We have an entire Oathbringer series already. When it came out originally, it was episode 10 to episode 20. Those are all Oathbringer. If you want more details after you're done with our three minimum episodes this time you can go back and re-listen to all of those as well yeah there's definitely some things that i will mention today but that i am purposefully not really going into detail on because we already have a whole episode about it and there's a couple things that i think we're gonna check back in on and be like what have we learned since we did those episodes that maybe new information or is not true anymore words of brandon etc but there's a whole bunch of stuff that we will not talk about today. So go back and listen to those episodes. What we are going to talk about today are the prologue, part one, the interludes, and part two. We're breaking this book up into more pieces than we have previously throughout the reread. And I am so glad that we made that decision because just my outline notes for part two almost got me all the way through the alphabet. So let's just be clear up front. This is hashtag all spoilers, but no mention of anything that's happened in Rhythm of War. We're in the weird period right now. I don't know when you're listening, but right now, Rhythm of War Chapters are being released. People are reading them. People are talking about them. We are a Rhythm of War spoiler-free podcast until we mention otherwise, but definitely through this series when we are talking about everything the Cosmere and Oathbringer. Let's just go right into it, not waste any more of the people's time. Yeah, I'm so excited. What can you not wait to tell us about, Brooke? There are just so many huge things that happen already in just parts one and two like it blows my mind every time i'm reminded of like some other huge moment that has already happened in this book uh dalinar and navani get married there are some huge moments for kaladin there is so much information dropped about the Parshendi, Gavilar, the history of the Parshendi and the humans. Yeah, and it's their basically just a history book. The history of the Knights Radiant and the Heralds and like all of the lore surrounding that. We get a bunch of info about information about different uh, people on Rashar that we haven't seen yet, like the Natan people from Puli's interlude. We get more info about the Dawn chant from Alista's interlude. We get the girl who looked up. We find out that Yasna is alive and hints at Yasna's backstory, which I 100% forgot about. And super fascinating. I was like, wait, how did I forget about this? But we'll yeah, talk more about Yasna. We'll go more. I'm just running down the litany of things that has All already All that you can't wait to talk about. Battling and Unmade. Moash and the Fused. They find the oral library of the Knights Radiant. 
And then we meet Odium. Just to cap off oh, part and that's two. Just part two. Yeah. That's where we're not even talking about the rest of the book. It <laughs> is literally blowing my mind. And this is where I think that the structure of Brandon's writing, his decision early on to have this five-part outline and make a very kind Just of the clear... fact that he outlines his yes. books, I think, is super clear and both reading this book and then going back and like taking notes and everything for this episode i just have so much appreciation for the amount of skill that brandon sanderson employs in his writing because something that is very difficult about writing is to be concise and to like make each one of your words that you choose super meaningful and impactful and powerful so that you can fit as much in with as little fluff as possible. And yeah. he does that masterfully in this book because there is so much in it, but you don't feel like you're being, you know, taught or preached to or like you're slogging through a bunch of information. Yeah. It doesn't feel like that at all. You feel like you're just reading an enjoyable story. And then when you go back and look at it and you're like, oh my God, there is so much information jam packed into this book because Brandon is an amazing writer. It would honestly feel impossible or overwhelming as a reader knowing ahead of time like how detailed this epic of the stormlight archive is but i think that because he has this very clear structure that he has created that we're more like comfortable or willing to go on this epic journey through all of these different things and meet all these little back characters because you know okay well i'm in an interlude between part one and two right now and so therefore i know that there's going to be more development after this and that maybe I don't understand it now, but like it creates a yeah. trust with the reader. It makes reader. it easy t easier to like bite off different pieces yes. of the world and the story because as we've talked about in some of our other reread episodes, um, in particular, I've talked about the epigraphs yeah. and how the first read, like a lot of times I'm not really paying attention to them because I find it difficult to read those and really pay attention to them and then get back into the story. But it's structured in such a way that like, that's okay. I can go back later and just read all of the epigraphs and like take them in that little bite if I want to. What is the thing that you can't wait to talk about? Well, I think just the beginning of this book feels so different from other books that I've read, even books in a series. Um, let's take like the Harry Potter series as an example, just because everyone's read that for the most part. The beginning of those books almost always starts with Harry on summer break at the Dursley's house. And so there's always this like little introduction. Okay, what's going on in Harry's life? How do the Dursleys suck now? Before you get back to Hogwarts and the magic and everything. And that kind of feels normal, especially for a series where you kind of like, okay, let's ground ourselves back in the world. And then a little bit of warm up, a little bit of build up, a little bit of intrigue. And then we're going into the big event. With this third book in a way that, like, I, I don't know if I've ever felt before. Brandon just, like, drops us in and he says... It starts. 
we are going goes. the world exists and it's been existing without you for all the time that you weren't <laughs> reading and now that you are reading the world is going at full speed like you don't get to slow down and it's just you have dalinar and navani's wedding which to me is just the best start to this book that's going to be amazing. so dalinar focused and i hope we get uh, a book that is navani focused in the future i want kind of maybe a similar she's not play. on the list as a point of view character but unfortunately i she's think cool. it's so interesting the way that their lives have intertwined and it allows this you know recognition that she's not a new introduction or a new person in dalinar's life she's bringing this past along with him in fact early on it is navani who's most often um saying Evie's name, but Dalinar can't hear it in the beginning of the book. And so they're having that conversation and he has to admit that, you know, he, I went to the Night Watcher, this is my boon and curse. But like that relationship is so meaningful and I know that it's going to become so important at the end of the book where Well, Navani, and it's like, such an important character moment for Dalinar mm-hmm. because this happens so quickly because it's Dalinar like making a decision and choosing a direction to go basically you know they're having that conversation and he's kind of just like okay let's do it like i'm done pussyfooting around i'm done trying to decide i'm done you know racking my brain i just take an action let's just do it done period and And they do like that night they just like are both like okay cool they go get changed into their fancy outfits gather a couple people and they just get married storm father marries them yeah like that's all you need i really love this as a beginning because this is what I want at this time in the book is I I don't want to wait you know I I love this world the fact that this is a third book out of five as like the whole I'm already into it yeah exactly like uh, you know you got me so we don't need to do (laughs) a slow introduction and I really appreciate the details well, that are thrown in. And to be fair, you do have the prelude to kind of slowly get into it, even though the prelude kind of throws you right into. Yeah, I mean, the, the preludes are always kind of hard because they are also like an event that we've already seen a couple of times. So I have some familiarity with the pattern of the way things are going to go. And then it's like through a new characters. But the first it's one was still overwhelming. Kinda, it still kind of throws me off, though, every time, even though I know it's going to be a perspective of the feast mm-hmm. because it's a different perspective. I'm always like, wait, 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 what? Who are we? Where are we? Why does everything seem so different? Because it's through this other character's perspective, in particular, because this one is from Asianized perspective. So it's like 100% different. I love it, though. I love this beginning this way of starting a book and i hope i pray and i haven't read the beginning of rhythm of war but it's definitely what i want out of rhythm of war as well like i am just so kind of enamored uh like a little schoolboy crush that i got going on (laughs) here just on the beginning and the way of like beginning oathbringer i know now that we've started our oathbringer reread my excitement for rhythm of war is like starting to come out of its cage (laughs) we basically just talk off mic about the cosmere all the time so (laughs) it hasn't really been in any type of cage but yeah we're unleashing our nerdiness hardcore yeah thanks everyone else for joining (laughs) 
Let's go to our rough cuts. What are some things that you, in these first two parts and the interludes prologue, what do you kind of feel didn't work or was not your favorite thing? Well, I think the biggest thing that has stood out to me is just that my memory is correct. This book has a really heavy and dark atmosphere Mm -hmm. to it. Like, there's just a lot of really heavy stuff happening. So that is what I had remembered and why, as I said previously, this is the only Stormlight Archive book that I have not reread up until now. And I'm feeling it. I'm definitely reading it at a slower pace because it's hard. It's really heavy. Yeah. And I think that we are also dealing with a little bit of the weight of part three, which we have read into a little bit. And I think that there's just like the knowing of what's going to happen in the future. And like, I thought you were going to say the heaviness of the world right now, which is what I feel. The world feels very heavy. And so this book feels like extra heavy. I know, and I'm trying to, like, bring people just into our silly little happy orb of Cosmere nerdiness, where the only heavy things are the story of Dalinar. We have this weight that I think is present at the beginning of the book, because Brandon knows where he's going to go. And if you are rereading this book, then you know where it's going to go. So it is even harder to get through some of the earlier scenes and, like, the happier scenes then stand out so much. We'll go into more detail about these, but like when you get a little morsel of bridge four, it's like a lifeline. Because there are some really beautiful, poignant yes. moments in this book. I think more than any of the previous books, I have pulled out the most quotes from this book that are just sort of philosophical lines that apply to all of us, you know, outside of the Cosmere world. So there are some really beautiful sort of learnings and teachings and sweet philosophical moments. However, I would say that on the reread, some of the darker moments have impressed upon me even more, like how sad they are, like Shalon's storyline here and... um I've started noticing Renarin's storyline in this book a lot more in all of the like little tiny moments that are just mentioned in passing. Mm-hmm. Like all of these times when he's asking different sets of people about future sight. Yeah. And like the first read, you kind of think that it's just him being curious or trying to learn scholarship. Yeah. But this time I'm realizing like, no, this is because he's really struggling and like doesn't know how to ask for help basically, or like is afraid to ask for help. And he's just like suffering in silence basically, which is so sad. Yeah. So even the things that didn't necessarily seem sad on the first read through are becoming sad or on the second read through. Yeah. And like the intensity of Shalon's self-hatred is so much more apparent to me this time around. Yeah. And in different things that she says and thinks you're just like, oh, oh, man, that's that's dark. You need help. It is definitely like the lines that are just used 
to pierce right through, I feel, you know, such a weight with, as you said earlier, just like Brandon is almost like concise. And when he wants to. When he wants to cut right to the heart. He can do it. Yeah. Yeah. What is your rough cut? So I definitely feel that darkness and that weight as we've talked about. But I think that the Adolin Sadius murder follow up is left such an impact at the end of words of radiance it's the kind of the cliffhanger moment in a lot of ways of just like oh my god adolin has killed sadius how is this going to affect everything and then sadius's murder turns into the investigation that eventually leads to one of the unmade and so there's a lot of purpose to it and it's important but the act kind of eclipsed yeah, exactly. The unmade is more important than Sadius, and eventually the fight that Shallan has with the unmade in the, you know, wrapped around the gigantic column uh, is way more significant and an incredible well... moment from the book. And so I feel like a lot of Sadius as like a character almost feels undercut in some way of just like, oh, he just had this death, but it was just a death. Like, and we moved on and the world like keeps going. Yeah. And I think that is part of the point. It is. Especially in a like culture that is so warlike Mm -hmm. to begin with. And then in the midst of so many other bigger things happening, it is kind of like, well, that's just one person dead. Like, (laughs) um, But I think, and I might be wrong, we can come back to this in future episodes. I think that we get more about it more specifically later in the book. Well, my saving grace or what I think is important is there's going to be a moment that kind of uh, George R. R. Martin loves to do in his Song of Fire and Ice series is that the death of a seemingly important character actually reveals that there was a more important character totally. underneath him. Uh-huh. And to me, that is... Amaram? No, 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 not Amaram. Uh, he's the obvious one. But... Eli, Sadius's wife. Totally. And she comes into She was play. always the mastermind behind them. Yes, but it, it becomes more apparent both in the flashbacks and yeah. in the follow-up. And as we see the story progress, like, yes, Amaram's going to come into the fold and kind of take up that mantle of, like, how Sadius. But I really think that the long kind of view, my guess, is that Eli will become one of the most significant characters in the story where Sadius seemed to be that way and was that way um, in the first two books. Well, I think it's that was like... Eli coming even more important. That's the benefit of their partnership, right? Is that she oh, is absolutely. she's the spy master. So she likes to be in the background, hiding in the shadows. And Sadius loves to be in the spotlight. So they were very well matched. Okay. Tell me about one of your favorite moments from just the first part of (laughs) Oathbringer. Okay. Well, one of my favorite scenes and one of the fandom's favorite scenes, very well known, uh, is Adolin and Shallan having a cute little date, developing their relationship with pattern as their chaperone and this is like you were talking about one of those moments that is 
light and happy and fun. And so it sort of stands out as this like shining gem in a sea of dark sadness. Um, But this scene is just so great. There are so many wonderful little moments. And I have a few uh, quotes pulled out here for us to read. One that really struck me is from Shalon. Quote, he actually thought she was pretty. This wonderful princely man actually liked being with her. She traveled to the ancient city of the Knights Radiant, but compared to Adolin's affection, all the sides of Eurythiru were dun spheres. He liked her. And he brought her food. End quote. <laughs> That's Love really it. all you can ask for. Like, just like me yeah. and bring me food. <laughs> exactly. Which is generally what I try to do in like every situation, even like non-romantic situations, just like at work, just be like, okay, here's like some sandwiches. Makes everything better. Exactly. It's not going to make it worse. It's like, oh, here's some cookies. Uh, dang it. It's not like... I love this scene. It is, as you mentioned, beloved in the fandom as well. I think the... Obviously, the most famous quote from this scene is, no mating. No mating. (laughs) Pattern figures out like what a chaperone is, but his initial confusion (laughs) about what a chaperone does, and Shalon replies something along the lines of, you watch us to make sure that we do nothing that's inappropriate. And Pattern's response is, quote, Inappropriate? Such as dividing by zero? In quote. <laughs> Best line ever. <laughs> because dividing by zero is entirely inappropriate. You don't do it. It's perfect. Uh, another great quote from this scene as she and Adolin sort of sit down in that sort of atmosphere of comfort that you have with someone that you know pretty well and you feel good with um, and those sort of small moments where you're just eating together. Quote, she felt like drawing this scene, but knew it was the type of moment she couldn't capture on a page. It wasn't about content or composition, but the pleasure of living. The trick to happiness wasn't in freezing every momentary pleasure and clinging to each one but in ensuring one's life would produce many future moments to anticipate, end quote. And I just, I love that because I feel, I feel that very similarly in, you know, so many different situations, especially nowadays with all of our instant social media and like the compulsion to share so much of our lives yeah all the time that like if you're doing anything it's like oh gotta take a photo and post it on instagram or post it on facebook and the sort of acknowledgement or awareness that not every moment that is wonderful and meaningful can be captured in a photo you know like some of the best moments you take a picture of it and you're like oh that doesn't look great or it like doesn't look fun or you know like it doesn't capture the feeling that I'm having right now and just that acknowledgement that not everything needs to be captured and shared but just experienced yeah and on a personal note I think that that actually desire to try to capture in like a belief system where trying to capture something makes it like weaker or worse but like i think you lose out on the experience that you're having when you're trying to capture it it's kind of the because i've always taken lots of photos and been very into photography 
and there's a distance that is created when you are the observer of a scene and you're not really in the scene anymore. Right. You're not experiencing it. You're analyzing it for the photo. And that's important if you want to be a great artist like Shalon, and it's a good skill to have in many different situations. But yeah, I feel like the compulsion almost to like capture something is the danger. And that's the balance that like light weavers represent is that they can't go too right. far. They need to be able to understand well, the difference between their artwork and reality and like what's important yeah. is reality. Especially with the nature of their uh, magic, right? Like they have the potential to sort of exploit every aspect of their life to use in their illusions. You know, like every single thing that they're doing, seeing, experiencing is something that they have the potential to capture and then use. But like, how much do you cheapen your life when every experience is just something to capture and use and exploit later? And while Shalon and Pattern obviously are a big part of these scenes, Adolin also gets like great moments. He totally does. Because at the end of this, when they're done eating um, and they're talking about uh, Shalon learning how to fight, yes, Adolin gets, gets like so excited. So He's so happy. Cute. He's just like, Shalon, you have a shard blade. <laughs> oh you God. have a shard blade. He's so happy like that they yeah. have this thing to bond and that he like springs up and yes. he's like, I'm going to go get a swords. I'll be right back. Just stay right here. Oh, he I'm brought so them. excited. The little, uh, the barriers that they put on the shard blades. He's like, I hid them behind the thing because I didn't know that if you would want it. So I'll, just, I'll, I'll be right back. And he's just like, go, goes running off. To, it's the cutest like little it's thing. Adorable. And just shows his well his name right yeah like, that was this the moment because this is great that was the moment that just like clicked for me in the sort of compatibility of these two people and the way that adolin embodies his name which we hear uh for the first time in this book we hear the way that he got his name and like the linguistics behind it his name means born unto light and he really is someone who embodies that light. He is such a naturally earnest and honest person. Like he is the opposite of Sadius, right? He has not a subtle bone in his body. He has no guile. He's like completely guileless, which is why we see him like agonizing so much over that moment where he kills Sadius. And then Shalon is sort of the other side of that coin where she's really comfortable with the dark side of her nature. She's pretty comfortable with, you know, shadows and lies and subterfuge. And so you put them together and they sort of balance each other out, hopefully, or you can imagine them doing so in the future and like see the way that this partnership has the potential to grow and benefit each person. Um, When you put them together, they're sort of the essence of a light weaver, the truth and also the lie so Adolin and Shalon, that's a pretty great part of this book. I I love it. How about you? Number one. Well, also early on, there are the couple of chapters where Kaladin is going back to Hearthstone and he's racing back there and he doesn't quite make it in time before the Everstorm. And he's all sad because he's Kaladin. And actually, I know, I know. <laughs> Because normally I'm the one defending Galadin, and uh, this time you uh, you pulled out some quotes. Yes, I will come to the rescue of Galadin because there is a wonderful 
uh, character growth moment in that first chapter where he's going to Hearthstone that I think is so, it feels so good because we spent the entire last book with Kaladin just being an annoying, grumpy storm cloud. And so it's so like a sigh of relief yeah. to see him time. move there's on. Growth. Yeah. And there's this great quote. Perhaps it was time for once to stop letting the rain dictate his mood. He couldn't banish the seed of darkness inside him, but Stormfather, he didn't need to let it rule him either. End quote. That acknowledgement and growth and maturity is so wonderful to see from Kaladin. And he continues to represent that growth yeah. when he is in Hearthstone. He like punches Rashon and then immediately is just kind of like, well, that was a one-time thing. I can't do that anymore. Like that's not And who he I like can apologizes yes, for yeah, it too. He, He's like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Like I'm better than that. But the moment that really stands out to me, there's one that I talked about in our original series. Uh, which is when he leaves and he like rises up oh, glowing yeah. in stormlight. Which is great too because he spends so much of the first two books hiding. Like, yeah, not wanting to yes. reveal himself. Like like so we coming were out just talking about like, with Shalon, like yeah. clinging to this thing so hard. And then in here we see him really willing to say, like, look, this is who I am. This is what I can do. I'm here to help you. Have no fear. But before that there's a moment that leads to him breaking down <laughs> and it's when his mother introduces him to his baby brother yeah who is well I'll do, there's this quote that stood out to me this time and it is quote his mother let him take the little boy hold him in hands that seem too rough to be touching such soft skin end quote oh and there's just this recognition, I think, that Kaladin is experiencing, and that's what we're trying to vocalize, is that he himself has had this horrific, difficult life with lots of things that have made his hands and his body rough and his mind rough and his personality rough. But there is still the ability to, you know, be close to people, to bond with people, to touch soft babies and <laughs> to like other things exist in the world other than the rain um yeah and other than that darkness and so it's just this really simple thing of like holding your little brother that kaladin gets to experience and i think then puts him in the position of seeing his family like reunited kind of whole again and that is what gives him the confidence and the desire to then stand up and, and declare himself and Dalinar to be refound you the night's radiant and like we will not fail you that's just such a wondrous moment at the beginning and as you said after watching for a lot of words of radiance where he did not do those things and he kept kind of doubling down on hiding and staying in the shadows this is his coming out party and it's really great and I just am so thankful for that series of scenes because i think it really shows what kaladin has been through and then how he's going to be different going forward yeah agreed another one of your five favorite moments well you know i always have to talk about the epigraphs okay hit me with some <laughs> um and i think we may have done an entire episode just about the epigraphs we did we okay did. <laughs> so i won't 
go too much into it, but I did want to touch on a couple of sort of updates since that episode that we've gotten from Words of Brandon, etc. In part two, the epigraphs are three different letters to Hoyd. The first one is entitled to Cephandrius, which is one of Hoyd's names. And we have a word of Brandon confirmation that it is from endowment on Nalthus. So that's an interesting new fact. And then uh, one quote that I pulled out here that we spoke about last time, but I still think is just super interesting from chapters 38 and 39. So this is endowment talking to Hoyd. Correct. Okay. Yeah. With it. Quote, your skills are admirable, but you are merely a man. You had your chance to be more and refused it. No good can come of two shards settling in one location. It was agreed that we would not interfere with one another, and it disappoints me that so few of the shards have kept the original agreement. End quote. Intense. So, yeah, just like so fascinating. The fact that Hoyd had the chance and chose not to. The fact that they had agreed not to be on the same planet. But as readers, we have already been to two planets that have more than one shard. And it just makes you wonder, like, what the other shard worlds that we haven't seen yet look like. And then later in the letter, she references a vessel, Uli Da. Um, which we have confirmed is the vessel of, or was rather, was the vessel of ambition. And uh, that was the shard on Threnody from Shadows for Silence. Mm-hmm. That is the first shard that was shattered by Odium. And it happens at another undisclosed location. We don't have a lot of Correct. information about what happened with the battle between Odium and ambition, but... I think it's important to remember that vessels are separate yet connected to the shards and the power of the shards is still conceivably out there. I'm wondering if something happens that like Odium is trying to take the power from Mm, the shards and kind of like got to collect them all. I don't think so. I'm not saying that that's what's happening, but I just want us to remember to become Adonalsium. Odium Odium wants to be Odium and to have nothing else to oppose him. It could be utter destruction that is his aim, but I just want us to remember that there are vessels that were mortal at some point in their history, and then there are the shards and the power of the shards that do remain separate. And we most clearly see that on Scadrial with Ruin Preservation and then Harmony. So just want us to remind remind us of that because it's important i think that like there's still ambition right there's still the power well, out there there's in at some least, way yeah shards or yeah, uh, splinters um, splinters of ambition and then the second letter also is addressed to Cephandrius and we spoke a lot about this in our previous episode but we have confirmation now that it is from an avatar of autonomy, and that avatar is the island of Patchy. This one is always like mind bending, and I don't want us to just keep going off into little sidetracks of stuff we've previously discussed. But the fact that Patchy, which is 
the island that we get to see and experience in first of the sun that that is also an avatar of autonomy and autonomy's powers are super weird because he has all these like things that are separate from him but are also still him they They, have autonomy they have all of these yeah exactly yes absolutely they have all of these different avatars and one of them is a physical location the island of patchy yes and then in the letter that patchy is writing to sephandrius they indicate that there is a new avatar yeah that we that it kind of sounds like is also another island in the same place so anyway that's it for the epigraphs again we have a whole episode about them so i didn't want to bring up too many things isn't just the a last couple. just to close it off you said there were three letters isn't the last one from harmony to Sipandus? it is heavily speculated that the last one is from harmony and it's i i think like there's a 99% chance it's from Harmony. But it's not hard confirmed It has yet. not been hard confirmed. No one's bothered to use their question to Brandon Sanderson <laughs> for that because it's like obvious enough. Got you. So three letters uh, that all make up the epigraphs in part two and super important letters for understanding the greater Cosmere. Okay. Over to you. Well, you're just blowing my mind. I like know. as we just said, we could have gone off into little so many sub things. categories so many for things. each of the mentions that we're making, but there's just that's how the book is. There's so much information, there's so much history, there's so much the fact that like people just casually drop that Yasna when she was a child, was dealing with some type of mental breakdown well, and there was, was like, like imprisoned an for illness. A bit? Yeah, potentially, it's unclear if the illness that they were talking about is the madness or if she literally like got ill and then became mad, and then she gets locked in like a closet or dark room or yeah, something the Harry where Potter she's just her- like screaming and no one is listening to her, like letting her out. It's terrifying. And you only get like two sentences. Exactly. And you don't get that much mention. <laughs> and then we don't find out exactly what anybody is talking no. about. So those are, as we have previously talked about in Sanderson's work, those are going to become really important. Like Yasna is one of the named characters that we I think is going to get a book. I can't wait to get so Yasna's like, book. Yeah. I'm going to talk more about her. <laughs> All right. I won't go too much into her. But what I wanted to uh, bring up was some information that still because she was also just dropping knowledge bombs. Oh, totally. And she was, you know, she's reawakening. She's re-remembering her own life story. But she says this to Kaladin about the Parshman. Quote, the Everstorm. So sad. Power has filled the holes in their souls, bridging the gaps. They didn't just wake Kaladin. They've been healed. Connection refounded. Identity restored. There's more to this than we ever realized. Somehow, when you conquered them, you stole their ability to change forms. You literally ripped off a piece of their souls and locked it away. End quote. Yeah, there's another quote that references capturing, uh, I believe the, it's quote, a, an ancient cru- crucial spren. Yes. Is how it's described is the way that they, they defeated the yeah like took the powers away from the parshendi but so we have this i i just want to clarify on the linguistics mainly for us but also for the listeners 
we have the Parshmen, who are the conquered, the subset of listeners who can no longer change their forms. Yes. Those are the ones that are usually are slaves in human society. Then we have the Parshendi, also known as the listeners. Well, we have the Parshendi, who are also called the listeners, who used to be the singers. Because they lost their knowledge, but they did maintain the ability to change form. So we see these who are fighting in book one, and obviously where we get Eshenai and Venli from. And then we have the fused, which are introduced, I guess, first with Eshenai in Words of Radiance, but now... Well, it's kind of, I get confused because I don't think Eshenai was actually one of the fused. There are, there are still Parshendi who are corrupted by Odium's spren. Storm But form. they are not. Yeah, they're in storm form, but they're not the fused. Like, the fused are something different. The fused are Parshendi that have been possessed by the soul of a previous listener. Yes, and like the ancient the uh, very, ones. very Like ancient. the first group that 4, Odium years ago. worked with. Um, those are who we call the fused. And these are the ones that can cycle... Um, after death into new bodies so what i figured and i could be wrong she could have just been storm form i thought that esh and i was possessed by the first of the fuse and then when she so. died that fuse just because cycled out and then that's why if she was we wouldn't have chapters from esh and i's point of view like it would be from a different character's point of view because she wouldn't be Eshenai anymore. Oh, I understand. Which while she's at the end of Words of Radiance, yeah, we okay. get chapters. She's just storm form. Got you. But there is that aspect of storm form that is, as you were saying, like corrupting and yes. like doesn't let them have their full ability. But so like they're to be as clear as possible. It's the Parshman who lost their ability to, to change form. The Parshendi who maintained it and therefore were susceptible to the opening of storm form and that ever storm and the releasing of odium's full power lets the fused come back and we see the fused a lot more they have abilities that are very similar to kind of like an honor blade and yeah it looks like radiance. they have surge binding but like through void, void light. binding? Yeah, void I light guess. instead of stormlight, basically. Yeah. Is, uh, and it seems to have some pros and cons. Uh, it does to seem void like light. they have different uh, orders ish. Like mm -hmm. Moash uh, comments a few times that there are there seem to be different types of fused. Some of them can fly, some of them can't. So it's possible that they have you know, 10 orders of void binding like the Knights Radiant. All of this to me was just, you know, getting hit over the head with more and more information about the Parshendi and the Fused and the Parshmen like the Kaladinses who have just been, as Sil said, healed, connection mm -hmm. refounded, identity restored. These are the ones who are like playing the game which i now imagine is the stormlight archive game so it's like with the runes and stuff um but this is to me such an important part of oathbringer and kaladin's specific sub story throughout oathbringer definitely is that the parsh people are immensely important to understand as a people and that they 
are as much victims of the humans as they are victims of odium and the fused. And so they're getting hit on all sides. And it just makes me more and more sympathetic for what Kaladin goes through in the later parts of the book. Tell me about another one of your favorite parts of the book. Okay, I am just going to gush about Yasna again. It's easy to do. She's amazing. Yeah, my note is literally just Yasna is hella cool. Which is a fantastic note. Like, (laughs) I take it, I hear your note, and I respect it. (laughs) Last time I read a great quote from Yasna, because Yasna is just an intelligent, articulate, wise woman. And she's just always saying great stuff. Um, So I have another quote from her that was just like, Hala, that's a great quote. Quote, they will try, Yasna said, to define you by something you are not. Don't let them. I can be a scholar, a woman, a historian, a radiant. People will still try to classify me by the thing that makes me an outsider. They want, ironically, the thing that I don't do or believe to be the prime marker of my identity. I have always rejected that, and I will continue to do so. You decide how you are defined. Don't surrender that to them. They will gleefully take the chance to define you if you allow it. End quote. I love this so much. This just speaks to, like, all human beings. Yeah, exactly. And it's a fantastic solidification of Yasna's character. Yeah. And just like, oh, this is why she bothers people. Like, all the heretic (laughs) stuff, like, this is why... Some people, usually the people in charge, want to prescribe everyone with every aspect of their life, especially in the Alethi culture. They're like, you have a calling and you have this and you are in this role and you are going to do this. Well, and I think just her point about like the choice to define her by the thing that makes her an outsider. Yes. Right. And like that's human nature, you could argue, kind of thing of like wanting to push someone out or like create a line um, there that it's not that they're telling her who she is, right? They're telling her who she's not. You are not like us. You are not part of our society. You are not a good Voren woman, quote unquote. Yeah. I don't know if I necessarily want to go down this route, but there was an interesting conversation that I was listening to about uh, kind of gender fluidity and the conversations that we're having a lot about sex and gender and all these different things and one of the people mentioned you know why what's the urge to continually subdefine all of these different categories where you know if a man is really macho or a man is really feminine in their portrayal of themselves they're still a man like it's just that's the big group like, don't try to subdivide totally. the group into a bunch of different things. That seems like what Yasna is saying. And as one of my friends likes to say a lot, I is who I is. Preach. <laughs> to continue on the Yasna's hello cool <laughs> tangent, um, just a bunch of cool things that she does. She knows how to lip read and she's just like looking around the room, learning a bunch of secrets, checking in on peeps. I love her little study group. that she has that she's like got this whole like span read configuration going to basically 
make like a group text. Yes, that's all it is. It's just like the most complicated group text that probably it's like uses a like Zoom on Rashar. Yeah, Zooms on Rashar that rely on like the slavery of Tiny Spren trapped inside of gemstones. Yeah, that's great. I just love her little scholar friend network. Um, she apparently has drawings of the Herald's true faces and just a bunch of tiny little tidbits of like cool stuff where you're just like, man, Yasna's got it going on. She she may be a little bit behind on things because she was like in Shadesmore for an entire book, but she still knows a lot. It's really incredible too how just that, just having a group text at the time and the time period that Rashar is in its development would literally be so groundbreaking and so powerful that it can be wielded almost like magic. I mean, almost like a a mechanism to gain more power and like ability to research things. If you can talk to someone who's a, let's say a, a natural, a naturalist, a natural scientist who's just kind of studying geology and those types of things, and that allows you to make a connection about architecture in Kolinar, like Yasna would have growing right. up or something, that ability to just obviously today we have the internet and so many different aspects but before that we had like huge libraries and papers were disseminated around the scientific world like purposefully yeah like all of that stuff is just like yasna is ahead of the game in so many respects and as you said she's also behind because she's been in shadesmar (laughs) for a while so once yasna I don't know what's happening in Rhythm of War, people, but I want some really great Queen Yasna stuff. Okay, and then to continue down this route, (laughs) my next note says, Yasna versus Amram equals baller. Hashtag go girl. One of the great fights that involves no one dying. It is amazing. In the entire series. Yeah. Will you read this with me? I will play Amaram. Thank you. Oh, I'm going to have so much to say about Amaram, but let's read this first. Okay. Quote, you godless whore, Amaram hissed, releasing her. If you weren't a woman. If I weren't a woman, I suspect we wouldn't be having this conversation. Unless I were a pig, then you'd be doubly interested. He thrust his hand to the side, stepping back, preparing to summon his blade. Yasna smiled, holding her free hand toward him, letting stormlight curl around and rise from it. Oh, please do, Meredith. Give me an excuse. I dare you. End quote. And then I feel exactly like Shalon in this scene because Yasna t- turns around from that exchange and Shalon is like literally squealing. Yeah, she's fangirling so like, hard. <laughs> and then she finally bursts out. You were so clever. And Yasna replies, And yet my first insult was not to attack him, but the moral reputation of his female relative. Clever? Or simply the use of an obvious bludgeon? End quote. And you're just instantly completely chastised like, oh, yeah, you're right. And to be both fair, like Yasna is trying to play it off, but in my viewpoint, my philosophy of the world, be like, if there is an obvious bludgeon around and you are in a fight, use the obvious bludgeon. Like, well, that's fine. no, but her argument is a feminist argument, which I is that yes, we she attacked can't the be, female. Yeah, we can't relative. be attacking each other. Which I totally hear. 
And at the same time... Well, I don't know anything about Amram's mom, but I have a feeling she is not completely responsible for his complete douchebaggery. Definitely not. There's plenty to be said about Yasna's um, argument that she is making. I just think that in the situation that she was in with the possibility of like... It was still awesome. Yeah, Because Amram needs to be taken down about 20 pegs. If you can do that any way, shape, or form, I support it. (laughs) Just like, it's fine. But I totally hear Yasna's argument that like a way to be clever would have to come up with an insult about him Him. and to depersonalize him in some way. But no, I went after his mother. Yeah, And so like, I get that. And at the same time, be like, if you're in a fight, girl, use every weapon you got. Just like whatever it takes. If he gets a little distracted because you mentioned his bomb and he gets all hot and red faced and then he's flustered. That's wonderful. That's the other thing that I think is so great about this exchange is that it is it's the chink in the armor that is Amaram's respectability. Right. Because he is the kind of man that makes me so angry they're the quote-unquote good guys who think they're entitled to everything because they're good guys but then you like hit the right point and he turns around and he's snarling you godless whore yeah. and you're like oh yeah who's the good guy now amaram yeah exactly someone who is his true nature is revealed and you're just like ah gotcha yeah he's definitely you know putting on the face and he's much more machiavellian or kind of just a but we haven't seen him lose his composure before this like he's always pretty slick pretty cool so even though you hear about bad things that he's done or like i mean even when he's killing kaladin's squad you know the first horrible thing yeah he's still like cool calm in control rational and it's just like i'm really sorry i have to do this but this is the moment where like the real ugliness inside of him comes out and i love it that's what i'm saying use whatever weapon you you got i caught your ugly face i love yasna and i feel like yasna as you mentioned the book of yasna will just be (laughs) book of yasna yeah it's gonna that's how i see all of these these are new gospels coming down we have the book of kaladin the book of shalon the book of dalinar and when it gets to the book of yasna that's the one that i'm waiting for that's like the Mary Magdalene secret book. They, they don't let come out. <laughs> totally. Okay, you're up. Okay, from one of the interludes, we meet Ulim and Demid. And in Venli's interlude, we see these two. And Demid asks a question that I think is very important and also and is really a great example of one of the underlying philosophies that Brandon has. Demid says, quote, our ancestors, what do the dead have to do with this? And Ulim says, everything, seeing as they're the ones in charge. Now, Ulim is a Voidsbren, so he is referencing the fact that the ancestors are the fused, the ones yeah. who are actually legitimately in charge of like the daily operations. But I think that this is a great quote because of the way that history impacts so much of the world that we live in and how our ancestors totally. and like what our ancestors wrote down or in Rashar, what the different 
church figures kind of took out and removed from the story and changed and all of that stuff is like that's what's in charge yeah like it's great to think that we are completely independent doing our own thing like we have nothing to deal with whatever our ancestors did but there are so many ways in which the world that we live in the things that we do the way that we think is completely dictated by what came before us, what our ancestors did, and what has been passed down to us. Yeah, I mean, even the idea of being independent. Like, <laughs> true, you're not independent. No, no one is ever born in the world thinking that they're independent. You literally are like <laughs> suckling on your mother's teeth yeah. for many months or years after you are born. Like, you are only given the idea of personal independence, personal liberty, because of specific ancestors at a specific time who were working together and like cooperating. And then you have like the birth of nations and enlightenment era and all this like stuff. That's work that people did for you on your behalf. And so now you can be born today and you can be 10 and you'll be like, I'm an independent person. I'm going to do X, Y, Z. But like all of those concepts and the reverse, the opposite are also all given to us from our ancestors and the the world around us at large. And so that's just a super small thing. I don't need to go into more detail. That's a great extrapolation. Thank you. Uh, And then we can just go to the next one. We don't need to do 92 minutes on this. It's good to have some some quick ones. Exactly. I don't know if I have any quick ones. You do not, but that's okay. (laughs) Okay, obviously the biggie is that we meet Odium. Okay, so this is actually part two. both of our... Yeah, we did both put this in. Okay, so we'll talk about this together because holy cow. This is it. Like, this is when Thanos comes down and destroys Hulk. It blows Hulk your mind. In it like, blows yeah. your mind. I think between the two of us, we basically pulled out every quote from this chapter we just copied the entire chapter and then divided it between the two of us and like look we're both bringing something to the table yeah this is different (laughs) i'm saying something different no it's all okay so do a quick um description what is odium in his own words oh yeah this is one of the most interesting things i think about this interaction is all of the ways that Odium uh, makes a case for himself because he's mm-hmm. very compelling, actually. Like, yeah. he's really charismatic charismatic, and he makes a great case for himself where by the end, I'm kind of like, I mean, all right. We yeah, do kind of need Odium. Nobody thinks they're the villain, including Odium. Yeah. And, like, I kind of believe him. <laughs> we'll see I'm how far it goes. i yeah. a little bit. Okay, here's... Uh, a few things that he says about himself and sort of his role in this world. Quote, Passion, Dalinar Colin. I am emotion incarnate. I am the soul of the spren and of men. I am lust, joy, hatred, anger, and exultation. I am glory and I am vice. I am the very thing that makes men, men. Honor cared only for bonds. Not the meaning of bonds and oaths, merely that they were kept. Cultivation only wants to see transformation, growth. It can be good or bad for all she cares. The pain of men is nothing to her. Only I understand. Only I care, Dalinar. If you could see the result of honor's influence, you would not be so quick to name me a god of anger. Separate emotion from men, and you have creatures like Nail and his skybreakers. That is what honor would have given you. 
end quote. Like, such a good argument. When it's presented this way, and obviously this is the thing that is great, like, the villain seeing themselves and having a legit explanation. This is all the great villains. You know, Killmonger doesn't see himself as a villain. He sees himself as a hero, as, like, bringing the technology of Wakanda and his people to the rest of the world who's struggling and needs help. Like, that's a valid cause and if he won he's the revolutionary and he changed the world he did all these great things obviously you know things go differently but the same thing can be said about any situation whether it's like american founding fathers are not they're only the founding fathers because they had something to found after they rebelled against their country and were like traitors and would have been killed if they had lost and so Odium's description of himself, I think, is really important because it lets us know that we are, A, not dealing with something like Ruin that was by design, by personality, by the power of the Shard. The only thing that it was ever going to do was, was ruin. break everything yeah. down. It was yeah. like, this is my purpose, is to end the world. I am Shiva, the god of destruction, and like that's part of life, and you just need to accept that humans on schedule but here with odium it's not that clear cut and i think that's important that we're not seeing a villain that is truly just only villainous and that's important yeah totally and like when he presents it like that i mean yeah who wants a life that is only yeah without joy and anger and passion like right that is just like contracts and bureaucracy and like he says like Nail, who is just like letter of the law, period. With well, the no... Asian, Asian people really like that. The <laughs> contracts and the bureaucracies. But they are still human. Of course. You and know, they still have all of these emotions underneath. Right. But that's what I'm like, worried about. They are about. a balance. Yeah. I'm definitely worried, as we've already seen, like some humans deciding to join the side of Odium. And Moash is just one example. But this concept that like entire nations might join odium and yeah well and i'm curious i just wonder like who is the real villain is odium really the real villain i don't know it just it makes you question Let's actually go over to a question that was asked recently of Brandon. He's been doing all of these AMAs and streaming events where fans ask him questions recently. And in a Reddit AMA, user TW asked, quote, Stormfather once said that three of 16 ruled, but now the broken one reigns and that odium reigns. It's not crazy to think that Odium is the broken one. My question is, could it be possible to fuse Odium shard without the vessel rays with the remnants of honor, the cognitive shadow, in order to create a whole new shard? Could Dalinar do something like that? He would be uniting them, the two shards, one of them supposed to be the broken one and the other that we actually no is a bit broken, end quote. And Brandon's response is that that is possible. So maybe Odium is the current villain in his 
state that he's in now, but he will actually become an important part of a new shard held by Dalinar or maybe one of our other characters. What I think would be great, though, is to read the introduction of Odium as a character, because it's one of the coolest parts of these early chapters in Oathbringer. Quote, I've always been here, God said. Always with you, Dalinar. Oh, I've watched you for a long, long time. Here? You're not the Almighty, are you? Honor? No. He truly is dead, as you've been told. The old man's smile deepened, genuine and kindly. I'm the other one, Dalinar. They call me Odium. Dun-dun-dun! That, as an introduction to this character that is built up, I mean... I was lost. I was at a loss for words. You yeah. can't see my face, people. That moment is just, just like, like the mind-blown emoji <laughs> whose like, whole top of their head is just like a mushroom cloud. Yes, that was me. I feel that That's very it. strongly. It's just like, they call me Odium. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> the other moment in here that is uh, a great example of how we were talking about Brandon Sanderson being able to really like cut to the heart with very simple and direct sentences and writing style, there is this moment with Odium that is really simple, but it's sharp and it feels quietly dangerous where like both you as the reader and Dalinar in world all of a sudden is like, Whoop. oh shit. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Like I got to wake up here yeah. be at the top of my game. Like I can't sleep on this. This is the real deal. This is legit. Yeah. Um, and I think. And I am at a disadvantage. A huge disadvantage. <laughs> Quote. I wish I could simply let her have this place. So do it. Leave us alone. Go away. Odium turned to him so sharply that Dalinar jumped. Is that? Odium said quietly. An offer to release me from my bonds coming from the man holding the remnants of Honor's name and power? End quote. Yeah, he puckers up real hard there. Ooh. Of just like, oh, oh no. Shit. No, 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 <laughs> like, no, no. You playing with the big boys now, Dalinar. Yeah. Literally, you say one wrong word and you're going to fuck it all up. I think that this is really important is that it's establishing the fact that Dalinar doesn't know what the bounds or the rules are, yeah. and Odium does. He can be played like a fiddle. Yes, and it's just so important to that Odium makes that clear, but he doesn't make it most clear in this line. Like, Dalinar gets a little taste, and then he still gets cocky. Like, that's the thing. Is sure. Odium gives him this little check, and it's basically just like a bump, a god bump. God bumps you, and... Dalinar comes back from that moment and says, I've seen you, man. Like, you you don't yeah. frighten me You don't anymore. scare me, dude. It's the dumbest thing that he does ever. Pretty much. Because he literally just got checked by God. So, like, the smart thing to do is to then check yourself before you get all uppity. <laughs> before you wreck your entire planet and everyone on it. Because what Odium says in response to Dalinar's, I've seen you, man challenge is another one of these scenes that we've seen a couple of times across the Cosmere, obviously for the super nerds and the people who love all the connections to Adenalsium and the greater, like these types of things are examples of what are being dealt with by our characters who 
are introduced even with you know supernatural powers or really crazy stuff going on the difference the gap in between our characters and what they know and the shards yeah i think that is this scene is like dalinar i mean he's pretty powerful he's powerful politically he's powerful magically he's powerful physically, physically. and then he gets here and he really is like a tiny child dwarfed by this godlike power who doesn't know anything, is, you know, sort of speaking out of turn like, we're going to beat you. And you're like, oh, that's cute. In response to Dalinar's challenge, Odium says, quote, you've seen me, have you? Curious. Odium smiled again. Then everything went white. Dalinar found himself standing on a speck of nothingness that was the entire world, looking up at an eternal, all-embracing flame. It stretched in every direction, starting as red, moving to orange, then changing to blazing white. Then somehow, the flame seemed to burn into a deep blackness, violet and angry. This was something so terrible that it consumed light itself. It was hot, a radiance indescribable, intense heat and black fire, colored violet at the outside, burning, overwhelming power. It was the scream of a thousand warriors on the battlefield. It was the moment of sensual touch and ecstasy. It was the sorrow of loss, the joy of victory, and it was hatred, deep, pulsing hatred with a pressure to turn all things molten. It was the heat of a thousand suns. It was the bliss of every kiss. It was the lives of all men wrapped up in one, defined by everything they felt. Even taking in the smallest fraction of it terrified Dalinar. It left him tiny and frail. He knew if he drank of that raw, concentrated, liquid black fire, he'd be nothing in a moment. The entire planet of Rishar would puff away, no more consequential than the curling smoke of a snuffed-out candle. End quote. And that's it. That's what we're dealing with. So I don't know, you might be kind of right in that is odium the true villain what's going on is he the actual big bad yeah because it's just like it's so hard because some of that description is terrifying you know where you're like wow that sounds bad and like doesn't seem great it's not you know a life-giving light or, or something but then some of it like the description you just feel that is the sort of soul of humanity yeah it's a fire that like right? helps like us. that's the that's the thing that is that undefinable thing that makes us human that's I like agree, our yeah. very essence and so it's hard to just be like you're completely bad because like you said it's not like ruin just destruction where you're you could be like well i don't really like that at all and i think that's actually the more important thing because when you have those characters and, you know, we use the Marvel as an example a lot, but like, who's the villain in Avengers 2? You think about it and it's like, well, uh, I don't know. Oh, yeah, it's like that AI thing. It's that gets out of hand and he just wants to destroy the world and he takes over all of Tony's robots and they're all like fighting to destroy and shut down this AI. It's like, OK, well, that was always going to be bad. Like, that was never going to be a good thing. But then Thanos comes along and he at least presents this philosophy or this idea that, like, I'm right. trying to... Right. But, like, at to... least it's reasonable. Exactly. And so, like, Odium feels more like that Thanos character where you're like, I don't know. You might be right. Yeah. You could be, like, clearly the 
question of is he good, is he bad, that type of question is not going to be answered fully by Dalinar or any of the other mortals. Yeah. Like that's the difference that we are given in the scene is that whatever Dalinar thinks and whatever any of our other mortal people think, Odium and the Shards are on a entirely different level that is something that we really can't understand in the position that they are in currently. Well, and I think it's a great example of the fact that the shards are meant to work together mm-hmm. so that they can balance each other out. Like, uh, you know, there's a a quote about Odium in one of the letters in a previous book that's something like, he bears the weight of God's own divine hatred separated from anything that might temper it. Um, and so just like Ruin, right? Like Ruin is not bad necessarily, it's required for growth and life but like you know when you when you put ruin and preservation together you get something much more palatable odium we can't just say is bad should be destroyed it is necessary he just needs to be reunited with the rest of the shards to give him context context that's i think a really important aspect of Odium or passion generally is it like it needs to be given context because, you know, lust, pure lust with no love or connection is usually just assault or or rape. And the balance is always so important is that, you know, a love of country or a love of the society that you're in is wonderful, but nationalism and superiority complexes are very damaging. Yeah, and I love that something about Brandon Sanderson's writing is that he refuses to give us, you know, black and white heroes and villains. Yeah, but that he really forces us towards the middle path and, like, forces us to see all sides of incredibly complex situations and that those are, you know, skills and viewpoints that we can then take into our real lives tell me about your last favorite moment from the book my last one is a short one (laughs) to be fair i did it i did a short one (laughs) and that is the scene or the moment when dalinar joins the meeting of all of the scribes in order to support his son renarin and it's like such a small thing. I'm pretty sure I talked about it in our previous podcast as well, but I just love it. There's something just so heartwarming about it. It's exactly what you were saying at the beginning. One of those small moments that gets squished into this dark, heavy book that just lightens it a little bit that makes you, you know, it like makes my heart break and then knit back together again all at the same time where Renarin is like just struggling so much and trying to find his place and feels out of place all the time. And his father does this simple but so impactful thing showing up in a place where he's not supposed to be, you know, gets all sorts of weird looks, feels out of place as this gigantic man in a room of like scholars and women. And it's for his son. And and then immediately Shalon notices that Renarin is lighter, is happier, is more engaged in the conversation because he knows that his dad is there like 
cheering him on. Basically, like if he was a baseball player, his dad would be there like, you got this, Renarin, but in a cute scholarly way. (laughs) And I think that it's made more impactful, as we mentioned early, these like nice, sweet moments is made more impactful because of the sadness that's shown at other parts of the book. We know that, I believe it's in part four, but we're going to see the flashback where Dalinar is at his lowest point um, with alcoholism, and it is Renarin who comes and kind of breaks the spell that he had been under. And so Renarin gave him something as a very young boy and clearly like he didn't know he was trying to give him more alcohol that was the the saddest aspect of it but like he gave Dalinar a gift of you know slightly redirecting the future that was in store for Dalinar which was probably a a death an early death and instead he's redirected down this path that leads him to the Night Watcher, that leads him to the Way of Kings, that leads him to become the leader that he is today. And so I really find that even though sequentially this scene with Renarin happens first, it's made more important because it's like Dalinar now is giving back to Renarin, the kind of, you know, paying him back and helping him out because that's all he's trying to do is just like, I'll be here for you when you need to go on the path that you want to go down. Yeah, and I think it's so poignant because of the um gap between them we've talked about this before how like adolin and dalinar have a lot in common that they can come together and um you know converse about and agree upon and share and renarin has always since his birth right has been removed from dalinar more and to watch him as a good parent try to navigate that relationship and try to find common ground or like find a way to be there for his son even though he doesn't always understand him or you know even though it's not the path that he would have taken it's just so moving what is your last thing well i could not go without getting through parts one and two uh, without mentioning the Bridge Four chapters. Uh, and Obviously, they the, are fantastic. They're fantastic. Well, I think they're also like fan service in a lot of ways. They're still done in a way that definitely like propels the story forward. Yeah. But I think why I say it's fan service is because Bridge Four is basically, in many respects, going to die. Yeah. In the way that we as fans grew up with them. Well, and that's part of what is addressed in the chapters. Yes, exactly. And it's like they're dealing with these new members who are joining. They're dealing with their own personal issues and problems. New powers, Kaladin being gone, yes. right? And not really there to lead them. And they're swearing their own ideals. They're bonding their own spren. They are suffering separation from their families. They're dealing with all of these things. But most importantly is that the the core group of Bridge Four, as they once existed, really cannot exist in the new world because those new members who are Windrunners or Windrunner Squires, they're Bridge Four, like they're part of this group as much. And so we have to kind of have a moment where we give what basically are the lieutenants or the kind of core members of Bridge Four. They all just get their- The OG, yeah, OG Bridge Four. They get their moment in the light where they just kind of stand out and you have Sigzel and Scar who are like teaching people and, and coordinating and 
I love Sigzel's chapter and his like highlight on all of the things that go on behind, behind the, the scenes, scenes. Yes, where you're like, uh, you got to think about all of these things, dude. You can't yeah. just go about your life. It is one of the hardest things to keep in mind, I believe, as an author of a, a fantasy series where obviously you don't really want to focus on the right kind of logistics yes. yeah <laughs> so like logistics is always boring nobody focuses on it but as someone who studied and read a lot of history the reason why you know important moments in world history that we think are defined by military success whether that's napoleon bonaparte or the storming of the beaches on d-day or whatever it's always because of an incredible array of logistics that's going on, uh, basically a bunch of sigils and a bunch of the people that they have as um, scribes and messengers, like the the scout group who's working as messengers for the Windrunners, like all of that stuff is way more important. And it's, it's great that Sigzil makes that clear in his own chapters. But as they go on, you kind of get more emotional. You have Haber who regains the ability well excuse me he gains the ability to draw in stormlight and he gets his legs back they're like the bridge crew like rushes around and kaladin's like give him your spheres give him your spheres and he's just like covered in spheres and then sucks them all in and he's like i can feel my feet and it's just that was hover like it's not a character that's like number one in anybody's mind but like he gets this moment and it's a moment when like scar thinks he's failing and like that he oh, won't yeah. ever progress to that and rock's like are you sure bro because you're glowing right now <laughs> and he has that like whoop of joy and it goes yeah. and runs off um and then you get rock and his the story about his family and how he's been separate and importantly you get Rock's a lot of chapter like is the best rock is so great and he just like drops so many great little pearls of wisdom. He's like the dad of Bridge Four, you know, just like taking care of everyone, giving them all food. There is, it's actually not in Rock's chapter, it's later on, but they're all talking about this. Like everyone feels like they don't belong in Bridge Four anymore. And Rock stands up and he's like, okay, how many of you have come to talk to me in the last couple of weeks saying that you feel like you're the outsider and everything is changing? And like everyone, everyone raises, raises their, their hand. <laughs> Just secretly Rock is playing therapist to yeah. the entire group. Yeah, he's keeping everyone together. And he says, quote, life is changing. We will all feel alone because of this. Yes? Huh. Perhaps we can feel alone together. End quote. Alone together is not a bad way to go. I think that we also get, you know, mentioned from his wife that something terrible is happening on the Horn Eater Peaks. Yes. And we believe that that is one of the unmade who has moved up to the Horn Eater Peaks. We have, you know, Lopin, the yeah, Lopin. We get a couple of uh, tidbits in yes. that episode that sort of give us clues as to the... Uh, genealogy or uh, genetic makeup of both the Herdasians, like Lopin, and the Horn Eaters, like Rock, we hear that Herdasians have dark brown crystalline fingernails that are like carapace. And then Rock, from his perspective, we discover that he can see the true shapes of Spren, like he can see into Shadesmar a little bit. Mm -hmm. And he can also like 
just a little bit hear the rhythms, all of those are indications that these two uh, groups, ethnic groups, have intermingled with the Parshendi in the past. Yes. And then when we get um, the view from Relaine's perspective. Oh, yeah. He also makes note of this. Uh, he says specifically that sometimes it seems like the humans can or are reacting to the songs of the listeners. And he says, quote, they grow agitated and shout in time for a moment to the rhythm of irritation or whoop right on the beat with the rhythm of joy, end quote. And it's this reminder, I think, that these humans and Parshendi, they're all far more interconnected than they want to appear. I read a word of Brandon when I was researching for this episode that I had not read before. And he said that the rhythms that are most present on Rashar are actually a Cosmere-wide phenomenon mm. that this like cosmic rhythm is present everywhere we just have the biggest lens on it uh on rashar so that's really interesting call back to like our way previous episodes when we first came up with this theory because we were smart <laughs> what i love most about the bridge four chapters is that they give these little side characters, their moment in the spotlight, that they move us forward from where Bridge Four came from as these slaves, these soldiers, into where they are going, which is the leaders of the Radiance. I mean, Kaladin is always going to have a place in the Radiance, and the Windrunner is always going to have an important place in the Radiance. And we get to see that develop and have gotten to see that development over so much time that this it feels like it didn't need to be included you know who knows how many drafts of these works that brandon has done and like when did the bridge four um chapters get put in but when it's included it just adds so much to the world to the story to the emotion and really makes you feel valuable for reading the earlier books and like having this whole journey to go on you get to watch i want to clarify some work was done by sola scara reddit user sola scara where she broke down or he broke down they broke down the number of members of the windrunners at the end of Oathbringer. So here it is right now. As best research I can find, there are, at the end of Oathbringer, leading up to Rhythm of War, 39 members of Bridge 4. I love the idea that Bridge 4 could maybe become Bridge 40, and that the 40 number was always like how many people that they were trying to get to on the um, when they were doing the bridge runs, is that that was like a normal bridge crew was like around 40 and they were always dealing with like 28 or like even lower numbers when they got down but i just like that idea that bridge four bridge 40 so maybe we have let's just break it down kaladin our number one there are 31 squires 21 from the original bridge crews and 10 new members including some of the scouts uh there's two potential squires who 
are Relaine and Dabin, neither of whom have sucked in Stormlight, but Relaine, we know because of Venley, can definitely has that potential. And then there are two scribes and three additional new radiance, uh, Teft, the Lopin, and Renarin. Technically not a Windrunner. I was going to say, does Renarin count? Well, the, so Bridge 4 is the... He's Bridge 4, but he's, he's not four. a Windrunner. Exactly. Technically, like, the scribes are also not Windrunners, but in this kind of new order, I imagine that they will... They're not really going to be called necessarily Bridge 4 anymore. They're the Order of the Windrunners. Like, it's well, a new no, title. Well, no, I was going to say it's almost the opposite. Like, you can be Bridge 4 and not be a Windrunner. Mm, I got you. You can't call them, like... The Windrunners, because their family is Bridge Four. Mm. Respect. I hear. I hear you both ways. Let's uh, let's try to wrap it up with just some mentions of not Hoyd sightings. <laughs> yeah, Hoyd is conspicuously absent throughout the beginning of this book. We get a lot of him later. So yes. he's not absent from Oathbringer. He's just yeah. absent from parts <laughs> one and two. For a second, when I was taking notes, I was like, huh, that's weird. Why don't we have any? Oh, oh, yeah, we're going to get plenty of Hoyd. <laughs> so we'll definitely get some more of Hoyd uh, in our next episode. And our next episode is going to be on the interludes right after part two, part three interludes, and then part four. So we will end our next episode with part four. Then we'll have a final concluding episode that deals with part five and all the wrap-ups and the conclusions and the looking forward to Rhythm of War. That's what you got on the docket coming up. Until next time, life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. Destination.